Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very happy day. Very excited. Two guests for the price of one. It's always exciting when I get to sit down with two people. Just a special situation that happens. I can't explain it. And in this case, it's Mark Lano and Joanne Astro who have been a couple and in a relationship for five decades. And those five decades have been magical, both as an actor, actress, producers, club owners, and managers. And you're going to have a great time today. Their history, their lineage is pretty incredible. Before I get started, I want to thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. As always, can't do this without you. Thank you so much. And as I always like to do, I look at my guests and I never know what I'm going to say until I sit across from them. And the main thing I guess I think to myself right now is the fact that I'm looking at two people that have spent the majority of their life together and they love each other just as much as they love the business. And they've experienced many, many ups and downs, not only in their personal lives, but in their own businesses, yet they've prevailed. They keep going. They keep getting hit to the canvas and keep getting up, and they're an inspiration on how it's done through all walks of life, through every area of the business. And when you've been in a situation where you've had a chance to cross paths was some of the greatest people in the business from Adam Sandler to Eddie Murphy to the late Robin Williams. 
and be able to produce, be able to work on films with people like Al Pacino and Billy Crystal. It just puts you in another level, in another league. Yet, I look at these people and the prevailing thing, as corny as it sounds, is love, love of each other, love of their family, and love of this crazy business. And I think sometimes I get emotional about it because to see two people that not only are able to create a relationship that stands the test of time, but also are able to create a business relationship that stands the test of time. I think it's what we all aspire to, yet many of us, upon trying over and over again, tend to fail at. And so in its simplest terms, all I can say is that Mark Lano and Joanne Astro are an example of exactly what we all want in our life. Stability, family, happiness, integrity, kindness, and class. And I think if you can figure out all those things in your life, professionally and personally, I think you'll have a great chance at having the kind of careers that they have. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited. Two guests for the price of one. Here goes the introduction. Mark Lana was born in Brighton Beach in South Brooklyn, New York, and is an actor-producer who has appeared in countless films and worked with the greatest actors of our generation. His credits include The Wedding Singer with Adam Sandler, National Security with Martin Lawrence, and City Hall with Al Pacino. In television, he worked on parts on Husbands, Wives, and Lovers and Better Days for CBS and appeared in the TV special Tag Team and followed up that project working on the Billy Crystal comedic drama film Mr. Saturday Night. Who can forget that? one of the greatest, as well as working on Beverly Hills 90210. Lana is also the owner of The Improv with his friend Bud Friedman, a legendary comedy club opened in 1963 and remains to this day a landmark of stand-up comedy, as it was one of the very first comedy clubs at the time. He, along with his wife Joanne, were intimately involved with the improv's growth from a single nightclub on Melrose Avenue in Hollywood to a national chain consisting of some 20-plus nightclubs spread across the nation. As a scenic director, Mark organized and directed the nightclub scenes in the early productions of An Evening at the Improv. 
While working to build the improv, Mark was able to find the time to partner with Howard Koch Jr. and his wife Joanne Astro as movie developers and producers for New Vision Entertainment. Not only did Mark develop and produce for the movies and TV, he also helped create Astro Lano Management, a theatrical personal management company that boasted Louis Black as a client, among others. Joanne also grew up in New York and produced the comedy troupe of improvisational actors off the wall. As an actress and comedian, performer, and producer, Joanne was also instrumental in putting together the back room at the Riviera Cafe on 7th Avenue. From the many years at the back room, Astro took off the wall uptown to the improvisation, which he used to turn the troupe into an even greater success, featuring such talents as Henry Winkler, Mark Flanagan, herself, and many, many others. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor. I can't believe it. They're here. I don't know who to give top billing to, but <laughs> since it's written here on the page this way, I'm going to go left to right and say, please welcome Mark Alano and Joanne Astro. Well, that's the way we open our act. Yes. Like, that was quite a glowing intro of, I, I want to meet those Thank two people. Thank you so much. I just incredible. Right. Absolutely just... incredible. Can we curse on this thing? You can do whatever you want. Your wife is extremely well-dressed. You look like you just worked on my car. What happened? <laughs> that is how I go through life. I, I work on cars. I, I did a, a transmission the other day. Magnificent. I just want to know how a woman who dresses this classy and you come around with a polo shirt and some sweatpants or whatever that it is. is. That is, I am offended. I can't take this kind of rejection. We start the show rejecting. I'm sorry. Look at me. I'm dressed like a Jewish homeless person. Come on. That is correct. I was going to give you a couple of dollars on the way out. <laughs> That's why I have my cup here. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I have so many things to ask you guys. Well, go for it. Wow. Go for it. We just... How long have we known each other? But we've known each other forever. Yes, right. Tell me a story about something you did at the improv that when you look back on it, you say, God, I, I really fucked that one up. I created a bad situation. I could have handled it so much better. And I really cost myself a relationship there with somebody who went on to become somebody very significant in the business. Well, I didn't actually do that. But what I did, I probably did, but I haven't thought of it. But uh, during one of the evening at the improvs, we were at the round table when Milton Berle was uh, the host. Just so you know, the round table in the old improvisation, not the one now on Melrose, there was a room up front and you stepped up a stairway. And in the back left corner was a round table where Bud uh, Friedman and Mark and Joanne and a lot of other people would uh, sit around and normally that was reserved for the star who was in there that night. If somebody came in, you know, the younger guys would move out and they'd be there it was understood. It's similar to in New York. If you go to the comedy <laughs> cellar and you walk up the stairs at the olive tree to the right, there's that rectangular table where Esty hangs out with the, the bigger comics and where the late Manny Dorman used to hang out. So it's that kind of thing. And so we're sitting around. There's a whole bunch. Don Myrera was there and uh, Milton Berle was there. I was there. And Bud. And, and Bud. Alex, it was a big yeah. deal to have Milton Berle host uh, evening at the improv. That So, you know, that was... Wow. And anyway, so everybody's talking, telling jokes. Burl comes out with a joke. I don't remember the joke. 
I say something and I tap him, everybody breaks up. Milton Berle turns around and slaps me in the face. Absolutely true. And I, I froze. I do come from the streets and I almost went after him, but I was cool. And I said, would anyone like coffee? And what did he say? Never top me. And I got up and I walked out. <laughs> That's a true story. There's so many stories. There are so many, many stories. But the experience for Mark and I, because we, we came, met at HB uh, Studio in Greenwich Village, and um, we were actors, and then we formed an improv group, and then we had a trio because we were a very lazy improv group. We never replaced anyone who left. So now we're a trio, and we get accepted at the New York Improv. And that was incredible enough and exciting enough. The New York Improv on 44th and 9th, where there's that famous picture of John Lennon by there. That is correct. Yes. It was uh, three hookers from the corner. Ninth <laughs> Avenue was the front of the Was corner. that the original name of the improv? The three hookers from the corner. That's correct. Yes. And it was, so it became our home in New York. And then Mark got a television series. And then uh, we moved to California. And our natural place to hang out was the improv. And then Bud needed an infusion of cash, and Mark needed a, uh, a job. Actually, to Mark own. needed a job, and that's how we Bought Mark me. became Bud's partner. And we had had one of these twenty-four-seven actor, you know, relationships, and suddenly I did not see him anymore because he worked twenty-four hours a day to make the improv a success. And if I wanted to see him, I would have to come to the club. And I, we, it was totally new for us in our relationship. And, and I it, remember on a Saturday night. In the middle of changing, changing over the shows, club. The people are, you know, he's changing the show. People are leaving. People are going in. It was, this is the moment I chose to go over to him and say, we need to have a relationship talk. It was a perfect, an absolutely perfect intercession in the middle. We have 300 people. That's not an exaggeration. Actually, it was more than that. It was almost 500 people letting 275 out of the room, right. letting 275 into the room. How long had you known him before that? We were married about eight, nine years. So you're married eight years when you're having the relationship talk. Well, because we had, oh, we, we were 24-7 couple, and now this was a new situation that I was not enjoying. What did you want to talk about? Well, I, I never saw him unless I came to the club. I, you know, we, he, I, I didn't understand business. I was a an actress and an idealistic person, and he is the part of our relationship that keeps us solvent. And she's the one who freezes our liquid assets. <laughs> and I am the one who has the vision and brings all the warmth and charm and meets oh, people. God and brings the Did you hear my life. balls hit the floor, ladies and, and gentlemen, and <laughs> with one slice of a mat knife? <laughs> um, we've always been a partnership. 
And really that's how our relationship functions. So when I became um, an owner of the improv, the physical entity became my obsession. Physical entity meaning the club. And that altered our relationship for the first couple of years. You know, I've been there 39 years, 38, 39 years. And my rival became the improv. You know, when you're working in a place and the woman you love comes up to you and hugs you and kisses you and you're like, okay, is this appropriate here or is this not appropriate? What was your policy inside the improv oh, for oh. public displays of affection? Absolutely. Yeah. We, we, we displayed, we locked the doors, we <laughs> fooled around after two o'clock. Absolutely. So you actually christened the place. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh. No, wasn't that I wasn't thrilled that we... <laughs> I would like to take credit for that, ladies and gentlemen. Thank that, you very much. Yes, that we own something, because we both came from nothing. So now that we own something, I was absolutely thrilled. I just didn't have a place. I had to make a place for myself, which I did do. That's how I became a stand-up. Here's another that, fun... I'm sorry. Can I interrupt you? I did. So you give a shit. <laughs> no, I don't give a shit. We're talking. I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk now. <laughs> I walked by the... She, so she would uh, station herself. There was another table in the middle of the room, and she would bring her friends in like once a week. Wednesdays. Wednesdays. And they would call themselves the whiners. They would whine with wine. And one day, I'm passing the table, and I hear my lovely wife, my <laughs> lovely wife, say, oh, no, order anything you want, girls. There's, it doesn't cost anything. It's all free. Free. Excuse me. I went, uh, honey, honey, could, could I talk to you just, 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 just for a minute? It's not free. <laughs> we pay for everything. Ah, that's what happens when you come from poverty. And the winers still exist? We don't want it the improv anymore, but we still are going to be whining. They say that a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man if she's going to be with him. Did you know? <laughs> and tell us the circumstance. I want your side of the story, and okay. then I'm going to have his side of the story. Okay. When I married, I married very, very young the first time. Very young in those days, 18. I married a man named David Rappaport, who happens to be the father of Michael Rappaport. A very talented man. Yes, yes. Uh, but it was a time of change. My daughter, we soon had, David and I gave birth to Claudia Lano, uh, Claudia Rappaport Lano. And then the world changed again, and women were being influenced by the changes brought about by Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem. And I have always been a risk taker, I now can say in hindsight. And I was living in Flushing, Queens with my network of girlfriends in wheeling carriages and having that whole 50s life. But I knew that it was not a good idea that I was getting into bed at night next to David, and I was closing my eyes and saying, and David died. <laughs> and then I could 
obstruct a lovely death for him, <laughs> and I would next be in Greenwich Village acting, which is what I truly wish to do. I was also in therapy because this was we were I was ahead of my time, so I left him, and I started to study acting at HB Studio, uh, which is was my dream, and they. In HB, you did a uh, spring cleanup and a fall cleanup, all the students, because it was so cheap and it was such brilliant, still exists. And I was uh, getting coffee. I was so terrified because this was so new to me. And from across the room, someone yelled out in my direction, Diane! And I turned and I said, no, Joanne. And he said, can I help you? <laughs> and, he, and he became my mentor because he was like the prince of the school. He had gone there since he was 15. And then actually, though- Actually 12. I, I went yes, to... but I also felt that it was my duty uh, to be in the forefront of the sexual revolution. So I fucked three guys that year. <laughs> Jeremy Stevens being one of them. Oh, great. They, Jeremy will hear this. And I am very, <laughs> very humiliated. I'm ashamed. And a at woman the, who did that kind of thing. And at the end of the year, I said, that first guy, that was the guy. And I took my head in hands and I went and apologized. And, I, and he... He had not only fallen in love with me, I think he had fallen in love with Claudia. He wanted a family. So you slept with him first and two other guys and you went back to him. Tom McCready and Jeremy Did Stevens. he know that you slept with the other yes. two people? It was the 60s. Uh -huh. We started to go out again and the Times came, the art section, you know, I bought the Sunday Times. And there was a photo on the front. It was honoring a silent movie and they were honoring it, and it was a very famous movie, and the two silent movie stars had been married for many, many years. They were elderly, but very famous silent movie stars, and she was, uh, the wife was standing on a train, the steps to a train. She, this is the 1920s, she had tuberculosis. And in the 1920s, when you went to the sanitarium, more than likely you did not come back. And they're saying goodbye to each other. I, I cry every time I do this. And she is saying to him, and they said in the silent, thank you for a lovely life. I looked at and I said, he's the one. <laughs> I knew that's what and I wanted. And every year she goes and to a sanitary <laughs> trying to get tuberculosis so she could live that scene. And, and more than likely, she will. <laughs> although now I've changed it so that he will be saying it to me because I'll live longer than him. All right, so Mark, what's your interpretation of meeting her and your well, thoughts. I would shorten the story. <laughs> I would shorten the story a little bit. No, that's actually uh, factual. I, I did think she was a girlfriend I had broken up with about a couple of months before. And I turned around, she was across, you know, um, we were in one of the studios, so it was, you know, it was a pretty long distance. And she looked like Diana Dell. 
And that's what I thought she was. Also, I was a little stoned the night before. So, you know, my lucidity wasn't exactly perfect. So I went, Diane? Oh. And then as I got closer, my my myopia came into focus. And I realized she wasn't Diane Adele. And we, I took her to the bus stop, which is uh, was a, a luncheonette. Of, a diner that a was diner across the street from the studio. And uh, we... Uh, went out. See, I well, I am the psychologist of the family. I will tell you because of his family. I uh -huh. think that I was one of the first women in his life who really listened and cared about what he said. And he had said that's a good thing. And then I had this adorable daughter that he fell in love with. Uh, and that is absolutely true. Joanne, how many hours of face-to-face -face time did you have with this man before you gave it up? No, that I think that night. That night. <laughs> I had so a problem with that dairy. It cost <laughs> me a dinner. Two drinks. Two the drinks next we made a date. He said, are you a giver or a taker? Yeah, that I did say. And she said, I'm a giver. And I said, then I'll take it and let's go. And that night we slept together? On the first day you slept together. Of course, of course. We're talking 1967, 66, 67. Was it? No. Yeah, no, we made it. Yeah, yes, yes. Here's my wonderful take on it. And the next morning we danced through Washington Square Park. Yes, Where the fountain is. Yes, yes absolutely. because we really were so in love and we were, and the sex had been great and we danced. And then the next, the next day he when he said he wanted a partnership and it worked for me too, we went to work. Wow. And to build this relationship. Now, if he hadn't been good in the rack, would you still have felt that way? Oh, I probably not. No, no, I don't think either of us would have. Yeah, but I, I do remember him saying, because he's a Taurus, if you believe in that, and I do believe some, uh, and I'm a Cancer. It's a very good, but actually, that, but that she night, grows and, on you. And Taurus is very work possessive, and he, he, he grabbed, he held my arm, and he said, "You belong to me. <laughs> you belong to me." And in my head, I said, "Maybe yes, maybe no." <laughs> Sound like your grandmother now. But we we wanted a partnership. That's why marriages that last. And then our other theory is every time we were going to break up, which was many, many, many times, something worse happened that we had to take care of, so we didn't get to break up. So we passed the moment of breaking up. And yeah, we got reinvolved. But also. Um, we, uh, a little bit like the Beatles, you know, the reason the Beatles stayed together as long as they did was because each one was allowed to write the song and then th the rest would come along. So, you know, John or whoever would write and everybody would do it no matter what. And that's what we've done for 48 years. Uh, whoever's in the predominant move at the moment, we, that's the way we go. Like, I was much more successful in New York. I had a very successful commercial career. And Mark was having problems getting acting roles. But then he got, thank God it's Friday, and the television series Husbands, Wives, and Lovers. So then we went to California because he was, at that point, leading the, you know. Leading the band. 
Yeah. And now we're in the middle of writing um, a, a play for New York. We just came back from a staged reading of it to, you know, introduce uh, producers to it. So, you know, we were very, really pleased at the reaction the scripts got. And it's a comedy, and but the, I think this will interest you that the the dad who in real life Mark's dad deserted the family and abandoned uh, Mark, uh, and part of the story is the, a reconciliation, and the man is now in his who the character is in his mid to late forties, and one of the people we would love to play it would be Michael Rappaport, because the, the the whole thing about. His dad was his dad was very tall and did not look Jewish, and that was one of the reasons that he gave for deserving the family. No, but he did. He wanted to yeah, he be wanted, an American. He, he, he wanted to want get out of the ghetto, and we did live in Brighton Beach, if anybody knows it. It's the upper crust of the lower <laughs> crust. <laughs> because it was... Because you had a beach. Probably the lowest level <laughs> on a beach in the United States of America. Very, very close. At very, the time, very yes. Close. Not yeah. much more. Now it's all Russian. I, you know, at one point I barked in Coney Island at Fabus Fascination. For those of you who don't know what a barker is, it's somebody who's outside of a club trying to get people inside. That's right. Yes. I have to go back to something, and then we're going to get into some deep stuff here. So you're sitting down with your daughter, Claudia. She's in her early 20s. Let's say she's a teen. And she says, Mom, you know, I'm going out with a guy tonight. I like him. Should I sleep with him on the first date or should I wait? And what would Claudia say to her daughter who's in her early 20s now, uh, presuming that maybe that hasn't happened? We're a very modern family. Here's what happened. Claudia was 14 or 15. And... We had moved here, and she was going back to spend the summer uh, actually at Joie Gallo, Joey Gallo's, uh, Claudia Lano. So we I, thought, I just a little insert. So I called her Pumpkinhead. <laughs> All her. That'll make a woman feel secure. I never thought of that. Hey, Pumpkin, how you doing? Oh, he slapped me into therapy <laughs> later on and said, why did you ever call me that and I thought it was an endearment I'm an idiot <laughs> anyway so she was going that was she was going back to New York so we thought before she goes we should sit her down and tell her the f facts of life you know and and what would she might be exposed to when she's in New York and so we started we were very and she interrupted us we were <laughs> <laughs> what we were describing. She said, uh, excuse me, uh, thank you very much. The two of you are very lovely. Most of what you're telling me still disgusts me. <laughs> <laughs> we never worried about that. <laughs> so we didn't worry about What that. we did, I mean, we had heavy stuff as parents, but that wasn't uh, yeah, that, was that, that was not, uh, we didn't worry about that. It's so. a bodily function. It's fine. Because a part of, you know, you know, part of our history is that now we're in California and uh, Claudia becomes a star at 16. And the club is the 80s and the club is wildly successful and she's 
the one of the stars of Knott's Landings, and she's exposed to everything that the 80s had, had to, to offer. offer. And we didn't but, have the parent. We were two liberal parents at the time. We were actually two liberal, double O. Yeah. And we really contributed to her being fucked up when the show when it came to an end. I don't know what we could have done. It was it's such a complicated thing. She, you know, I mean, but we we did not know, and we were overwhelmed. We, it's like I mean, Mark had a great deal of success in acting before he became uh, the partner in the club, but she was a fucking huge star for but, you know, six and, years. And when, you know, um, and, and when she started, one of the interesting things was my agent, our agent, um, you know, came to us. Um, and he said, you know, uh, Claudia's 15. If if she wants to get into acting, you know, now's the time because the competition is much reduced. There's not that many young girls. So would you like her to go out? So we talked about it and then we had a meeting with Claudia and Honey. You know, Mike would like to send you out. <clears throat> and, and, you know, you've seen us, you've, you've been in show business all your life because we used to, when I was on the road or the, the act went on the road, she would run the lights, you know, at nine, at 10, you know, sit down there with, the, with grips and say, uh, she'll call the light cues. You know. So she was, she knew what was, what it was all about, but we said, but now when you go up, you're going to get rejected. But you please, you have. We won't let you go out unless you fully understand they're not rejecting you, right? You're not right for the part. You're too short. You're too tall. You something. It's nothing to do with who you are as a person. Okay, she gets the first fucking show. She goes up for. Are you? Kidding me. Guest on the Mary Tyler Moore had a variety with variety, David Letterman yeah. and Michael Keaton at second audition. Not Slandy. The girl went to two auditions, never <laughs> got rejected, and became a star. And and the club We didn't was, talk to her for three years. <laughs> well, the club the club was he was a star in the club. That club was as you know, Judd Apatow said it better. If you couldn't get laid at the improv, you couldn't get laid. It was so hot. It was so... I must explain and why I haven't been there in a while. I, <laughs> let's talk about how resentful I felt and left out, and that's why I became a stand-up. You actually did The Tonight Show with Johnny yes, Carson, which is very rare for a woman to do. Yes, Jim McCauley. Jim McCauley was the booker for The Tonight Show, yes. and for our audience who doesn't know, he was a very, very difficult person to a lot of people. Yes. Just to give you an example, if you listen to this podcast, Carol Liefer, I believe, auditioned 24 times and was rejected 24 times in a row before she finally did her 25th audition and was given the show. How many times wow. did you audition for Jim McCauley? He asked me, and I was terrified. I didn't feel ready, and I was going out on a string of dates. So I said, well, when I come back, you know. Uh, <laughs> he offered you the show. Yeah, and then when I came back, he I, he worked with me. I was being managed by uh Shapiro West, Jim Canchola, and the night before uh, he came to see the set, and I froze. 
and he let me come up to the office the next day and I somehow talked him, assured him that I was going to be fine and he, he said, yeah. Take our audience through your first Tonight Show with Johnny. Take us through how you're getting there and you're sitting in that dressing room. Who's on the show with you? George C. Scott. And Johnny had just canceled the series that his company produced of, of that George C. Scott was starring in the TV series. And George C. Scott had gone and there was in the newspaper how pissed off he was. So this was some kind of a reprochement. They were getting together and, and George C. Scott came on the show. Now, unfortunately for me, Johnny was distracted, you know, uh, enough, but so that uh, I did a very good set. So you're behind the curtain, about to go on. What are you feeling? I am... Anything? I don't think she was feeling anything. I was feeling terror, but I was also focused on, you know, knowing I'd watched the show so much. I was excited and terrified and knew that I, if I got that laugh, that first laugh, uh, then I, I, you know, I'd done it enough to know that um, the, how to do it. I mean, there were like 10 women at, yeah. at best that did the show. That's correct. But one of the reasons that I stopped doing stand-up, uh, which is, again, psychological and what the fate of life is. Excuse my uh, wife is a psycho. Uh, is that I did not know, I did not know that I was as good as I was. You're one of 10 women since the guy has the late night show, the only game in town. You get on, you get asked to do it your first time Jim McCauley sees you, yet you believe that you're not good enough. I, I, no, no, I don't know. It just wasn't the thing that, there's something inside you, you know, at different times in your life. And, and also, I did not like working that hard. <laughs> Headlining, because I'd started to headline, and I did not... Maybe I saw the future of my life, and it, if you know, and it didn't appeal to me that much. But whatever it is, was uh, also who had who had done it. Also, she's so um, ladylike and wonderful. Rita Rudner. Yes. Oh boy. Yes. yes. She. But Rita was a dancer, so she knew the discipline. Uh, yeah, and also had a plan. Anyway, Roseanne. I saw Roseanne, and I decided to stop and begin to manage. <laughs> hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. 
I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. <laughs> hey everybody, I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water and if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So you can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, way back, Mark. I hope you don't mind. I'm going to start with you. Take me back to where you grew up, the socioeconomic dynamic, what your family was like, was and what was your first inspiration of getting into this crazy business as an actor? Because I know our audience is going to be excited about your story. Well, um, I always wanted to be an actor from very actually i wanted to be a dancer um but we didn't have money and um i don't know what their heads where their heads were my father deserted yeah. i was two did you ever see your father again i saw him uh, three or four times in my life and uh, the last time i saw him was the day we got married and then i threw him out of the house and that was the end of that so you invited him to the wedding i invited him to the wedding uh, at great angst to my mother my mother was in the hospital for the first nine years, or the, the, year, the nine years after my father left. We owned a furnished room house, which is kind of the premise of uh, the play we're writing. My father's parents took us in. But here's a, just a, a little background. So my brother and I, I have a brother, I have actually uh, three uh, half-siblings and a full sibling. We, you know, we'd play stickball on the street, and these two older people would come out every day. We'd play stickball. And for years, I'm talking years, now I'm maybe 10, 11, and my mom is now has come out of the hospital. What was wrong with your mom? My mom had colitis. She had the first successful colostomy, maybe in the United States, but definitely in the tri-state area. <laughs> That's like a, that's like the sales pitch for the hospital. I didn't know that you had to get a colostomy when you had colitis. Oh yeah, it she had serious. very very serious ulcerative colitis. Anyway, so and, but it's an interesting sidelight yeah. because of the war. 
in the doctors had so much stomach wounds that they had to take care of that they learned but they learned uh, to at, make this these bags so that people and, wouldn't die and during the war and they you know and as it went on they got better and better she had maybe a dozen maybe 15 surgeries so she was constantly in and out of the hospital so the couple doesn't come out so we go out one day and the couple isn't there so me and my brother go oh that's interesting okay next day same thing not there third day not there so we go into the house and we ask my mom you know that old couple up the street something happened to them sit down boys i'd like to tell you something what those two people are your grandparents they're my mother and father <laughs> what no yeah uh we uh we never talked so my no she my they threw her uh, out well um let me get to the story you, would you like to tell my story because you told your story now you can tell my story <laughs> it's really love exciting <laughs> and no no not at this Climb rate. aboard <laughs> we're expecting you. you i apologize yeah i don't accept the apology <laughs> of love <boats>. yeah <laughs> they threw her out uh my mother married my father her parents didn't approve and they threw her out of the house clearly they were right Obvi oh yeah they were right and she then uh, got pregnant with my brother who was older than i am and uh they needed money so and my father's parents didn't have money they you know they lived hand to mouth they had tenants and so they they scrounged by so my mom went to her father to ask for money they got into a big fight and he threw her out of the house and that was the last time they spoke not they saw each other obviously they lived on the block so that was my familial situation um but i wanted to be a dancer and then i lied about my age to get into hb studio you had to be 13 and my mom was out of the hospital and she went with me to HB studio and I was 12 and I lied and my mom lied with me and said yes he is 13 and so I was able to get in and I very quickly um, got a scholarship and I, I think I only paid for the first class how many kids were your age that were coming into HB studios the class well they were all a little obviously a little older than I was I don't know there were probably about 15 maybe yeah in the class I kept on saying even when I was like seven and eight I would tell the people on the block I'm going to go to a dancing school you know I'm going to take up tap I'm going to take up ballet but it never 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 took when I got to HB studio I took with Anna Sokolo they had I took dance Martin, department uh, yeah uh, Anna Sokolo and uh, singing yeah I never sang no for my father my mother <laughs> i never sang but you're a young kid you're 12 how are you getting around new york city without any supervision i'd get on the subway and i'd go to manhattan what are you talking about that at 12. oh yeah without question yes you you yes my 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 childhood is uh dickinsonian and um i was i was very bright and i really functioned 
I function very well. Got it. Okay, so what was your first opportunity in the business where you scored? The first really big one came from HB Studio. Uh, I was in Elaine May's first play called Name of a Soup that was directed by, um, uh, I think Bill Hickey directed it. Um, Elaine wrote it, Jess Osuna was in it, and... Um, Taxi. Uh, Judd Hirsch was in it. Yeah. Um, and I played the boy next door. But then I, I you know, I went up, uh, just opened auditions, and I worked in a um, in a summer stock theater, Allenberry Playhouse, which you got your equity card in one season because it ran from the beginning of May until the end of September. But I was so young, I was uh, probably 16, that I couldn't really stay to the end of September. So I then had to get another job to complete my equity uh, apprenticeship. And the next year, I, I got a job at the totem pole, Gene Stapleton and Bill Putch's place. Gene Stapleton from All in the Family. From All in the Family, from I Can Get It For You uh, Wholesale. Uh, had it, yeah, I Can Get It For You Wholesale. Um, but here's a, an interesting story. So I go, it's an open call. I Just out of the newspaper, I go up, and I think it was on the Winter Garden stage, and it's me and Gene Stapleton. She, you know, no wall in the family, and she's like in the fourth row, and I, I do my monologue, and I'm dying, you know, to get this job, to get my equity card. And she says, you're really a good actor. Uh, I'd love you to be an apprentice. I am flying. And she says, so uh, it's $100 a week, and uh, you just have to send us the first check before the season starts. So I look at her, I go, I, I, I'm sending you a check? What are you, what are you talking about? She said, well, you pay to be an apprentice. Oh, uh, I, I, I can't afford $100 a week. I, I'm coming for a job. I don't care how much you pay me, but I have just enough to eat and get around, and that's fine, but I can't pay you. And I started to cry, and I just turned around, and I walked out. I didn't start to cry in front of her, but I turned around, I walked out, and by the time I got to the stage door, I was really crying. Got on the subway, and I went home. And when I walked in, my grandmother, in her wonderful Yiddish accent, said, uh, you did very well. What do you mean I did very well? I didn't, don't, don't, you know, don't go there. I didn't do very well. I, you know, no, you got the job. What? You got the job. Here's the number, call. So I called. My grandmother didn't speak English, so I'm interpreting for you. That was my first language was Yiddish, not English. And they gave me, they asked me if I could do carpentry, which I could. And so I would be the handyman around the, around the theater, and uh, they would pay me $100 a week to go and finish out my apprenticeship. Awesome. Yeah. I'm going to jump back to you, Joanne. So take me back to your childhood. Tell me what your life was like and what your first inspiration was to get in the business. Uh, Mark and I were raised 15 minutes away from each other. We were raised in a golden time in New York City, in Brooklyn, in, in, in the because... There was so much relief that the war had ended and that there were 
money for education and the, the GI Bill of Rights. And so the schools, we were raised in neighborhoods where there was a sense of such joy that we had gotten through all of this. And the schools really were fabulous. They, they, they really did provide amazing educations. Um, my family, my, my mother and father had uh, a very sad thing happen. The year that I was born, my father, who was 36, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And um, I have a, a brother who's three years older. So we lived on dirt road and survived through welfare and the kindness of our relatives. And we lived in a house. This was also a, a very unusual time where the neighborhood that I was raised in was Jewish, Italian, and Irish. And we lived in a house that were owned by a family called Sheraldis. They lived in the basement. They finished those basements in those days. And they lived on the top floor. And we lived in the middle. And we were, um, whenever they, they wish, this was such a funny thing that is true, whenever they had any financial question, they asked my mother to please, because she was Jewish, to come and uh, arbitrate the, so it I was very sad because my father was such a wonderful man and we had no money, but we didn't, ha we didn't want, and we didn't, we, there was a sense of opportunity in the air. And I came, I came from a family of storytellers and my mother was a brilliant cook and our house, my mother has six brothers, five brothers and sisters, and every, we had the house because everyone, came to our house when they were, because of my dad's illness, because he couldn't leave. So the, I was surrounded by people telling stories and jokes and in accents, and we couldn't sing, we couldn't dance, we weren't. So now I was in first grade, and we were all assigned to do a poem, and the poem that I was assigned, or I picked, was Jack and Jill. And when we were, getting up to recite that each kid got up to recite. And when I got up, I did a rendition. Jack and Jill went up the hill. Each had a bucket of water. She does the same day. thing now when we get on the stage And at together. the end, the kid, the, they applauded. And Mrs. McPartland said to called my mother in and said that you, your daughter has. I was made to feel special. And uh, so it, it just, you know, uh, energized all my love and desire for performing in theater. And, uh, uh, and, and then I, and I was supported and voted best actress when I graduated. But when I wanted to become a professional, then my family said, what are you crazy? They don't make we don't. We the, you can't be a professional. We're we don't have the money for you to you know. Uh, that, 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 and so that's why I married the dress manufacturer's son. <laughs> and what did you watch? What happened to make you want to be in entertainment? Was there something you saw? 
the god of all gods was Sid Caesar. Show of shows. The show of shows. Of course, we watched Jackie Gleason and Milton Berle, but our mind, we are storytellers. So the sketches and Caesar and, and our family was so in love that we worried when he coughed, you know, because he was a lousy host, if you remember. Uh, and then I just dreamed I would become an actress. I was, that's what I was going to be. I knew I was going to be an actress. And she started acting more, doing more comedy. And I know you formed probably one of the greatest improv troops in history. There were two of them, one in California and one. Why don't you tell some people who were in your troupe? Okay, so there was Henry Ooh. Winkler. Oh, Henry Winkler. Yeah, uh, Mark yeah. Flanagan. Yeah. She went up for an audition for a, uh, an improv group called The Facelift. And Henry was went up for it and Mark Flanagan and there were a few other people. And... Uh, she got it, but the guy who ran it really wasn't that great. So she led a so rebellion. We broke off. Yeah. <laughs> she led a rebellion and took away Henry and Mark, and then asked and, me to join. And you know who else was in it? You're absolutely right. Thank you very much. She does Constance McCashin from Knott's Landing was in it. Then we made yes. it off the wall. And we, we performed at the Manhattan Theater Club, and we, you know... We opened for Frankie Valli and then, before in Seasons. And we then opened we, for Maynard and, Ferguson. And then we had a... Uh, Look how she doesn't let me interrupt. That's really disgusting. Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons, and that was at the famous bottom line where so you we opened up for... the bottom line, yes. Yes, yeah, Maynard. And the yeah. Pepper Brothers, they owned the place, and they fell in love with us. And they invited us... Alan Pepper. Alan yeah. Pepper. And they invited us to come back and see this incredible... Act. It was a country and western act, and we had gone. Really, we're going to go see a country and western Ooh, act. Oh, we were such, such snobs. Oh, fuck us. Okay, but it's Alan, a, it's yeah. a it's a job. We have to, you know, we can't insult the boss. So we went. He stuck us in the middle of the room because we were stars or whatever. And this little short woman with big tits walks out, and it's Dolly Parton. And she fucking blew the roof off. We sat there like, we are total idiots. This woman is a genius. She yeah, was incredible. She really, she, within a minute, we were eating out it of the palm of her hand. Everybody in the bottom line. Yes. And it was before anybody knew who Dolly Parton was. But the Peppers really had a good eye for talent. They really did. So let's move a little forward. Tell me how it comes about where you partner with Bud Freeman for the improvisation. And you were acting at the time. You'd done a lot of different roles here and there. And take us through how you decided you're an actor, you're married, and then you decide to change your tune and, and own part of a comedy club. I grew up with uh, two guys who were very good friends, uh, a musician named Garland Jeffries and a, a film director named Phil Messina. And we all came. They were in Sheepshead Bay. They lived in Sheepshead Bay. I lived in Brighton. And um, so when I was uh, in the summertime, you know, I'd be on the road. I'd be in stock. I'd be in dinner theater, whatever. But I, I didn't have money. I didn't come from a family with money, so I needed to work. And one summer I came back and I... Um, and I, you know, I, I hung out with Phil, and he said, you know, I, I got a job at this place called Pips in Sheepshead Bay. 
Kips was a comedy club back then. In Sheepshead Bay. And uh, we, if you want to go in, I, I think you can get a job. So you'll have, you know, you make money uh, through the winter or until you get another show. Oh, great. So I went over and there was, this is absolutely true. I went in, I was supposed to talk to Rita, the short order cook. And so I go in and the place is empty. This is not a joke. This is absolutely true. Um, Rita, Rita, is uh, Rita, you, is anyone here? Rita, nobody, nobody. I walk in, I go into the kitchen, I notice there are milk boxes in front of the stove, in front of the sink. I said, what? Rita, Rita? And all of a sudden, the walk-in refrigerator opens up, door swings open, and there's nobody there. And I hear, ah, I'm Rita. Who are you looking for? <laughs> and I look down, and there is a three-foot-tall, perfectly formed woman. And she was a she was a practical nurse, uh, a registered nurse, I believe. And she was Rita, was the short order cook. <laughs> And every comic who worked the room, and we'll go into some of the comics who worked the room, knew Rita because she would do cooking and she would service willing comics at the drop of a hat. And she would service the comedians she, in the bag. That is correct. Service in... Fuck. Oh, that's a visual... <laughs> I never, never knew that. Yes. <laughs> well, we, I can get into the graphics of it, but I won't. Um, so anyway, now George Schultz, the guy who owned the place, um, was Rodney Dangerfield's best friend. And he was an ex-comic. So for I, I worked on and off, obviously, for a few years. And uh, Joan Rivers with Edgar came in to break in the act and write it. And we were open Thursday through Sunday, and Edgar would stand in the back. George lived above the, um, above the store in the apartment upstairs. She would do the act, go upstairs. They would rewrite the act, come down for the second show, do the new act. Four nights a week, four months. Rodney came in, and George is the man who gave Rodney the I don't get no respect line. And uh, Lenny Bruce came in, he was a friend. So every David Fry, uh, everybody, Klein worked Pips in Brooklyn. Okay, and we waited tables. Um, I managed for a little while, and okay. So now, fast forward, we are doing the improv off the wall in in New York, but I wind up getting we we go we go. Uh, we have a friend, Madeline Kahn, and she's doing um, she's doing uh, Young Frankenstein, and she says, "Hey, you know, you guys, why don't you come out to uh, to Hollywood for a couple of weeks? We'll hang out. I'm doing this uh, movie, Young Frankenstein, and we'll just we'll party for a couple of weeks. You know, just take some time off. Oh, great! I go up to my agent, and he says, "Well, if you're going to do it, I have a." a co-agent in Hollywood, Mike Rosen, Dade Rosen. Uh, why don't you go in? If you get a part, you'll, you know, you'll pay for the, pay for the weeks, the couple of weeks. Okay, great. So we fly out. We hang out with Madeline and Gene Wilder and, you know, for the couple of weeks. And I walk into Mike Rosen 
and he looks at me and he goes, uh, you want to work? I go, yeah. He goes, you, you ready to go out? I go, yeah. He goes, okay. Hands me a slip of paper, sends me out. Literally, I walk in, the two minutes of conversation, I'm off. At some point, I realize I'm going up for a television show. This is crazy. I don't do television. And I become very, very nervous. So I go in, and it's it's just a reading. I'm holding the script in my hand. I'm so nervous, I pick up a pencil to do a little um, a physical life, and I go to answer a phone, and the pencil goes up my nose, and it's <laughs> it's a total mess, complete. And I, I, I go, thank you. And they're breaking up, and I leave, and I I go, oh, this is this is the end. If I am terrified, I go to the house, and I. This is staying at his aunt's. I, I was right? staying at my aunt's because we had no money. Phone rings. I'm in the middle of, and I, I know you think we're making this up. We're not making this up. And it's Mike. He says uh, you start working Monday, and it was a thing called Spencer's Pilot. I I could not believe it. And basically, from that moment on, I did not stop working. However, one of the jobs was a, a television series. It was a pilot at that point called Husbands, Wives, and Lovers. Okay, so it was an hour sitcom, and uh, I was the lover. The person who wrote it was Joan Rivers and Hal Dresner. And I walk into the audition, and now I've worked in Hollywood, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty cool with you know going up for jobs and stuff. And I walk into the room, and she looks up, and she goes, Mark? What are you doing here? And I go, well, I'm an actor. Are you reading for me? I go, yeah. Are you good? <laughs> I, I think so. She said, you better be. Okay. So I do the scene. Give me another scene. I do the second scene. I hear the normal, thank you very much. And I exit. I walk into the hall. I make a right-hand turn. I'm almost at the door leaving the building. And I hear, Mark, you got the job. I turn around, and there's Joan Rivers, and I got the job. And then I got, thank God it's Friday. So I begin, and I'm now I'm working. I have my own and series. And we moved to California. And then we moved to California. Okay. The, the show is an hour long. It folds. And we still, we had 19 million viewers. We had a 19 rating. They canceled us because 20 was the break point. So... A man named uh, uh, David Jacobs sees the show, and uh, he goes, wow, that's a really a great idea for a nighttime soap opera. And he takes the idea of husbands, wives, and lovers, and several years later, he creates um, Dynasty. And he changes the complexion of nighttime television from ethnic sitcoms, which Norman Lear and uh, Gary Marshall, right, to nighttime soap operas. And the name of my memoir when I write it is How I Became a Nightclub Owner, There Are No Jews on Dynasty. <laughs> okay, so now, joke done. Actually, that's, that's factual. So I'm working, I'm working, I'm working, and 
because the sitcoms are coming to an end, jobs start going away. There are no ethnics are not really wanted. You know, wasps, you know, Episcopalians are us. Uh, you know, the ethnics are gone and I'm getting less and less work. In the meantime, Bud Friedman gets divorced and gives his wife, Silver, the New York club. And uh, the man who was managing the New York club was Chris Albrecht. Who is now the president of Stars, Stars and was, was the, the president of HBO for That's many, many years and one of my favorite guests here on Industry Standard. There you go. And we're, and we're friends. And he can't stand Silver. And Silver gets into a fight with the, sh the cook at the Improv on 44th Street. And he walks out. Chris walks out. And Chris now shows up at our door. And, Dave Melrose. The, the, well, at our house. Our house, yeah. yeah. And he says, um, you know, Bud's, Bud's in financial trouble. How about you and I buy him out? I go, what? Uh, let, me, let me talk to Joe. So I talk to Joanne, and we decide, well, why not? I know how to run a club. Chris obviously knows how to run a club. I ran the, you know, I ran uh, Pips. And um, we started a negotiation with Bud. And a, a year, we negotiated for a year. And he comes up to me uh, one day at the bar and he says, you know, I don't really want to sell. I said, no kidding. He said, but I do need a, a partner. You want to be my partner? I've, Chris was all, has already been my partner. I said, let me talk to Chris. Chris says yes. And I became Bud's partner. I had the money, I had ready cash, because I had worked. I mean, I had a lot of money. So I bought the club. Your deal was you gave him an amount of money, and that gave you a percentage of the club from? 40%. It was a lot of money. For the time, for the, especially. Well, for the, you're trying to tell me that since you guys have been together, you've never had a financial Oh, no. <laughs> what are you kidding? When we came back from our honeymoon, we had a total, no. and I'm so proud of this, of $33 in the bank. That was it. That was our liquid assets. That's double 30, what I have right now. There you go, $33. And then the 80s came, and for the first time, we were, as you guys know, we did not come from money, but this was the 80s, and <clears throat> comedy was king. And we were always going to be. So we bought the house closest to the Hollywood sign. And we put in a shitload <laughs> of money, making it a disco palace and a thing. When you asked. It was and then the 90s came. <laughs> <laughs> we, well, we used to throw 48-hour parties up yeah. in the house. It started Friday night. We had two clubs. We had one in L.A. We had uh, one in Santa Monica. So we would have our friends not in the comedy business would come at like 8 o'clock for hors d'oeuvres and stuff. And and at uh, 2, uh, when Melrose clo closed, everybody from Melrose would come up. And then about an hour later, the guys from Santa Monica would come up. And we would party all night. Everybody would sleep in the house up tell you what the house looked like. Everybody would sleep in the house on the floors. We'd serve breakfast on Saturday. We'd party. We'd go back to the club. Saturday night, work the clubs. Come back Saturday night and have Sunday brunch. And everybody then left <laughs> Sunday afternoon. And, and But it was a glass house. 
It was what's called a keyhole house. So there was a, a, a circular portion which overlooked, it's the highest house in the Hollywood sign, overlooking the city. And then there was a square where we had offices and bedrooms and, what, well, not our bedroom. Our, and it was 80% or 75% glass. So as you looked out, that was it was the most magnificent house. Now, we're the highest house in the Hollywood Hills. Pool, hot tub, the, the, the whole works. The only thing higher than us was the radio station under the Hollywood sign or next to the Hollywood sign. And I'm first day I am in the house. I'm completely naked. I'm floating in the pool. There's nobody can see me. I'm going, this is this is unbelievable. I am, gee, God, man. And this is what I hear. Girls, girls, this way, watch your step. Watch the bushes over there. What the fuck? Are you kidding me? No, 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 come, everybody, this way. Just form a single line and come this way. I look up, and there, there is a Girl Scout leader <laughs> and an entire troop of Girl Scouts, probably 12, 13, 11, I don't know right, what age right. they were, walking up the path to the Hollywood sign because that path ended in our driveway. So these 15 whatever Sorry. girls, and I had to run into the house and get dressed. Yeah. I never went into the pool naked again. Tell us how you got into management and what your first success story was as a manager, Joanne. Well, I decided that um, I, the, I was going to manage, and I have a very lovely friendship to this day with a woman named Sally Schaub, who was uh, producing an all-women's uh, review at the Improv. And um, I, there was a, a woman named Andrea Walker. Now her name is Andrea Abbott. And I saw her perform, and I thought I would love, I could do something. And I knew I had the the infrastructure because of the clubs, because there were so many improvs at that time. So um, I approached her, and I, uh, she said yes. And, um, you know, I always had a great eye for talent. I must she say me. that <laughs> I managed uh, Doug Stanhope, um, John Bowman, uh, Louis Black, uh, uh, Nisi Nash, Nisi Nash, Michael Rappaport. So the and because I am a na by nature a nurturer. It really was a fit that worked very well. I, I really just understood intrinsically the service business. And then I we had had a relationship um, with APA and a friendship with Danny Robinson and uh, Jim and uh, and what Jim what what. Who was the other Jim? Now he's now managing. Oh, Jim uh, Callum. Jim Jim Callum. So I, that infrastructure was there, and every client that I managed was at APA. So it fell into pl place. It really did. And um, and also, you know, I'm, I'm I enjoyed myself 
very, very much doing it. Uh, I, the triumphs were, you know, and Michael. And then, of course, Michael, because I helped, Mark and I helped raise Michael Rappaport. So he was one of my first clients. That's Coming from me, a person who obviously has been fired many times in my lifetime. Yes. What's it like to represent somebody who is your flesh and blood, who calls you one day or sits down with you and says, Mom, you're fired? Horrendous, because he was at that time, and I, because we made amends and because I love him so much, but he was very horribly immature and all the worst things, although he never did drugs. uh, Michael never had a drug or alcohol problem, but all the arrogant, terrible traits that happen to some young, uh, immature people who become stars happened to Michael. And I, I forgot who he went with. It was a bigger manager. manager uh, and he was, his agent was Stephen Levy uh, at the time. And he didn't, Michael didn't have the courage. So I had to find out from Stephen. And it was a terrible time in our lives because the house, we were, the money, it was just horrible. and. He was cowardly and and was very, very hurtful, and we didn't... But you also have to understand that it wasn't just management. So Michael is Claudia's half-brother, and uh, Claudia invited him to come out for a summer. When he was 12 and 13 and getting kicked out of every school that he, he was in. He had been thrown out of like six or seven schools. Because he has ADHD. It's... And so he comes to the house hangs out for the summer, and he asks if he can live with us. Okay, so now we have Michael in living in the house, and he's going to Fairfax, Fairfax High School, and he wants to be a basketball player. He failed as a basketball player, not from talent. He didn't have enough natural talent. He didn't have enough maturity. So then he went back to go to uh, uh, he graduated uh, to, uh, graduated at Fairfax, and then he came back because he went to college. Uh, and um, this is a, kind of a funny story. He got into a fight protecting someone because he was helping, him, and and uh, someone bit off part his of his earlobe. Ear his earlobe. <laughs> so he came back to California, and then he asked. Could he try? He had nothing. I he mean, could, he was Could he nothing. try to get up on, on stage? Uh, could he try stand up? And we now, so we let him go up on stage at the improv. He is horrendous. You not even he's not bad. It's okay. And I, I and he went up many, not many, but often. And every time he went up, the comics, because I was really friendly with them. They would come up, they'd go, are you fucking kidding? I don't care if he's a relative, that's what you let on. Please, please, I can't not do it. Don't do not do this. Um, no. And so... But, but what he did have... He had charm. Yes. He was very lovable, but not a comic. But the most hurtful thing was Lewis Black. He's... The most really... Let, let's let's lay this let, let's lay this scene out. So Lewis is is doing stand up, not very successfully. He lives in a five story walk up 
um, in Midtown, uh, a shower in the kitchen, you know, toilet off the living room. It's horrendous. And we see him in um, Edinburgh. I'm managing John, John Bowman, Bowman, who is, they, they were friends from the West Bank Cafe. And I'm with Joe, and she has a conversation, and we, they, we start to talk to him. And he says, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, let's go. So he signs a three-year contract, and we did three years, and we built and we planned and we moved him from uh, Roger, Roger and he's and he's got the wrong agency. We move him over to APA. All the moves we do, all the moves, and we move him from clubs to small venues. We we double we uh, we split book him with um, David Tell to get him into larger venues. We manage him for 18 years, and he becomes Lewis Black. And then... And what, what, uh, go on. I think my greatest uh, gift to him that, uh, because when we first, he was so desperate, because he was 41 or 42, and he had gone to Yale, and he wanted, he was a failed playwright, and he was really... So he was malleable, as you know. And he was so angry on stage that he was not progressing with his stand-up. Because he was pushing the attitude was And I was able to say to him, you know, Lewis, I think this would work every once in a while, because you've got a smile like Jack Nicholson. And if you would smile every once in a while, I think the audience would feel how charming you are. And really, and it was the difference between. And then, the, then he exploded. But here's, here's a very interesting thing. In 18 years of management, he only mentioned us once. And it was the day he won his first Grammy. And the only reason he did it was he didn't want to go to the Grammys. And we had to talk him into it. Just on the outside chance if you get it, you'll get on the stage and don't you, you, you want to accept the award. The woman who preceded him effusively thanked her management, her agent, her family, and he was embarrassed because he never ever even admitted that he had management. So that was the only time in 18 years that he, he managed. Yeah, my manager. experience was, is a little bit different than Mark. The first six or six years was fabulous because he really did appreciate and was not a, I didn't, he didn't have any problem experience, you know, it, giving us our due. But then as the time went on, he really, started, again, he started to, he didn't know he, that he started to feel that he could handle his own. And, and there's an intrinsic, I think, sad, misanthropic element that is him. 
Yeah, but also and then he started to, then there was the road manager and the assistant who also did that thing of trying to supplant us. So that it's a story that is a very common story that he didn't handle gracefully. When he let us go in an ugly, ugly way, he said, you bring me too much work. First he said, I don't want you to say a fucking word. The two of you bring me too much work. And you treat me, and you like, treat me like a child. This is the only way, that's why people, some people break up that way. They can't, that they work themselves into an anger and make the person they're going to break up with and, you know, in, in business relationships and love relationships and families. And sadly for him, you know, because um, it was a very, very hurtful, uh, unnecessary thing, because by the way, we had sat down to have a, a, a talk about the next contract. And Mark and I realized that actually, you know, there was going to be some ending of the relationship. His career was not growing. He was turning down work. He, yes. he, he, he couldn't, it didn't happen. The talk show didn't happen. The movie career didn't, you know, it, but he, so we weren't unaware of it. And um, and then he just very brutally said, um, we said something about the contract, and he said, you're, you're finished. I know, I don't, I don't want to you're, go on. We're finished. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. We're finished. And that was three years ago, maybe today, because it was in June, yeah. right before my birthday. The other person who we managed, who was supremely talented and was one of the more unpleasant times of our life, was Kathleen Madigan. Oh, yeah. Another, Another. super talent, but mm -mm. She, she, she couldn't, she couldn't get arrested. We got her a special and happy, yeah. happy, happy. And then but, we go, you know, well, this is, uh, you know, this is the promo uh, schedule. You know, you're going to have to go out and mm. well, I'm not doing that. What what, what 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 do you mean? I began to stutter. Oh, what do you, what do you mean? You not you wait. You got to do that as part of the deal. You know, uh, they didn't want to. You know, they didn't want to work with you. We got you in here. You well, don't. I, you know her story. Oh man. I mean, she's. Oh, I have. If if Lewis came and apologized to me, and I felt that it was sincere, for me, I I would love to be his friend. It really. She, <laughs> I don't know, I call her the, the Irish troll. Well, I'm just one of the people who I really... Uh, she does the same thing with, well, she does the same thing with everybody, and I have a feeling he does eventually the same thing with everybody, too. I don't unless, know, you, are unless, you managing him hang, now? Let me, let me finish. <laughs> okay. Look, um, he, he, he does the same thing with everybody unless he feels that they are inferior to him. If you attempt to be equal or you have a, a pride of your own or an, an equality, he is not home for that at all. And I think it's because he's very aware of the limits of his talent. As a comic, really, really good, really good. As a playwright, 
He wrote 41 plays, and the only reason one of them gets on is because he's Lewis Black. Really not well structured. Did you ever have any dealings with him? I've known Lewis throughout my career. Last time I saw him was in New York, and I just told him that I have a lot of respect for him, and then that was it. I had a good time until the last years. I didn't, and then it got very, very <laughs> tense, because as you know also, because he did Disney Hall, and it was the beginning of this now change, and I allowed a, a, a guy who had some Parkinson's or some, who got in Lewis's face, you know, and Lewis, it was the first time that I really remember we were at the bar afterwards and the show had gone well. But he he went after me for, why did you let that guy in? Do you, do you, and I was so innocent. And then when he was, you know, talking too much to Lewis, somebody, Ben or Mark, just gently moved him away. And I, till I said, you know, Lewis, you're going to make me cry now. He was, that there was a side of him that was really... Um, well, the, the first time I had a run-in with him, it was about five years into the relationship, and we were running very, very late for a radio show. And uh, so I waved from behind, you know, he was talking to somebody. So I went, you know, pointing at my watch. He didn't say anything. And then walking out in front of everybody, he yelled at me. How dare, I don't want you ever to talk to me like that. I didn't actually talk to him. You know, and I have a bad temper, and I really had to keep myself under control. And it was very humiliating, but it was business, and I didn't, it was really tough. And he did it one other time, and that's why he said to me uh, when he fired, he said, I don't want to hear anything, because he knew that I would go for him. And it, it, it he's just not, he's a hypocrite, and... What he professes to believe is really not what he believes. It's really... It's kind of when they... Because there was such an elitism that came from Yale and Chapel Hill. And not that he, he, he didn't... He wasn't born with a silver spoon, but his, his mother was a teacher and his father was an engineer. But there was an elitism that we got to know that was really unpleasant after... Uh, after a while, but the first years were a lot of fun. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Could be a sentence, but it's just like a lightning round, but something interesting that comes to your mind. Bill Cosby. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Really a great talent, fucked up man. Do you believe he did it? Oh, yeah. Uh, we kind of almost know he did. Our, um, Claudia's uh, 
was married to a man whose first wife. Excuse me. Was we have we have stories <laughs> that go back with fir- everybody. Whose first wife is named Sandy Weintraub, and her father was Fred Weintraub, who owned who, the bitter. Who owned the bitter end and managed uh, Bill Cosby, and knew very well the uh, excesses. I don't know if Fred knew the this weird drug thing, but uh, but so sad because he played the role so well of a, a wonderful black man. <laughs> it's kind of the most incredible Jekyll and Hyde story of a, of show business. Absolutely, Robin Williams. Oh, ah, we have a story. <laughs> and a, a great guy, seriously talented. Slept on our living room floor at 52 McDougal Street Lane. with Elaine Boozler. With Elaine Boozler, they were uh, they were friends. They were friends. They were lovers and friends, friends. and uh, he neglected to tell him about to tell her about Valerie. Forget to tell her that he was engaged to be married. Billy Crystal, a very very talented, hardworking, sweet guy. Jerry Seinfeld. Oh. Really bright, oh, yeah, yeah. These and are one of those people. people that, by the time Jerry came to the improv, Mark knew well enough, and called me in and said, uh, "That's Jerry Seinfeld. He's going to definitely be a star." And he was twenty-four. You know, it was it was so clear. Jimmy Fallon, talented, um, not really a, a stand-up. Not really a great, well, certainly not a great stand-up. More of an entertainer. Um, sings, he, he used to do a guitar act. He'd break the, bring the guitar on stage. Nice guy. Um, again, as he got older, uh, became much, uh, I think maybe he, he became more of a, wanted to show that he was, the adult in the room, and that he was the 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 uh, leader and the the person in control. Yeah, Al Pacino. He was a, he was a nice guy. Um, don't really know him that well. Worked with him. Um, fun to be with, and you know, I don't didn't know him personally, but seemed to be a nice guy. Eddie Murphy. <laughs> so Eddie, great, great Eddie so Murphy Eddie, story. Eddie comes into the club. Again, very uh, for his age at the time, mature, certainly talented. I'm standing in the back of the room near the soundboard, and Eddie, hey, hey Mark, hey Eddie, what's going on? He says, "Well, I, I have uh, my uncle's here. It's Saturday night, sold out house. It's about nine thirty, ten o'clock, and we're near the end of the first show." And he says, "I'd like, uh, I'd like my uncle to go on." So I go, uh, your uncle? It's uh, Eddie. Eddie. It's Saturday night. I got two hundred and seventy-five people here. Is he a good talent? Pause. Well, he's my uncle. Yeah, I know he's your uncle, but it's Saturday night. Um, but he's my uncle. <laughs> but it's Saturday night. But he's my uncle. Okay. Okay. Now I'm really stuck. I'm okay. Okay. So look, Eddie. All right, we'll take a shot. But do okay. But you have to go up and introduce him. I can't just put on a guy nobody knows. He's not on the roster. Nobody just go up and introduce him. Again, pause. Okay. <laughs> so he gets up. 
and his uncle dies. <laughs> he fucking dies. But he got through it. I shouldn't say he dies, but it's Saturday night, and it's a hot room, and he really brought the room down. So it, it but was. He, but he's he was always interesting, sweet. Yeah, he wasn't he was, mean that when he did that. No, he wasn't absolutely not. arrogant. Doug Stanhope. When I was managed, managed Doug Stanhope, and there was a moment of time that Doug felt he was not getting enough attention, and he fired. Oh, he fired us. We went to. He was cutting. Or, or we weren't together, but he he's such a funny man. We was doing an album in Houston, and we flew down and. Uh, he he knew that he he was really jealous of Lewis, and he was really. Uh, he said, "My managers came. Uh, I tried to fire them, but they said it was not a good career move." <laughs> <laughs> From the stage, in and front then of and then he did, and years passed. So now it's ten years later. He's gone on to great success, and we're at Montreal at the comedy festival. And from across the room, he sees me, and he comes, runs across, and get, he gets down on his hands and knees and says, I apologize. You are the nicest person in show business that I have ever met. The strike of 1979 in Los Angeles, some of the comedians in the comedy clubs. Right. So I'm, I'm acting. This is, I'm hot as an actor. And Joe is starting the, out. And we had been, as off the wall, we worked the comedy store. And our name is on the wall, you know, handwritten on the wall. And during the strike, she, uh, she came out because we were walking the picket line and we were out near the picket line. And she climbed on a ladder and put tape <laughs> over our name she, off the wall. She, she's a piece of work, too. But, um, but. We, I was working in the belly room where only all the ladies could work. In the comedy store. In the comedy and a lot store. of them weren't ladies, let me tell you. <laughs> and um, all my friends were because of Elaine and, and Tom Dreesen and Jay Leno and uh, all of these people because we knew them from the New York Improv. And, and the, that a moment came where... Ten of the George Miller, they thirteen or ten went to Mitzi and demanded money for the comedians, but not but, for themselves, because the, the, they said we're doing well. We for the guys and gals starting out, and I don't know. Do you you've read the book, so you know that. Then she did the stupidest. It's like a a Trumpian thing she did. The next day, she called she called a meeting of every comedian working in L.A. They did nothing. They did not do that, and they were not. And we were all in the main room. And she got up to complain about what they did. None of us knew it. So she told, and then she had this, she was raised in Wisconsin, and she had a very pronounced Midwest, and, and everybody will be all there. Do you know what the comics have done? Ten of those comics, Dreesen Leno, she named it them, came to me and asked for money. This really happened. I was sitting there, and then she said, 
This is a college. There's no money I give you, it's a college. Meeting ended, a hundred comedians went to the phone and called whatever comedian they knew, Jay Leno, Tom Dreesen, and said, we're with you. When do we strike? <laughs> the strike started the next morning. Of the strike. How long did the strike last? We ran, uh, we ran seven weeks, 24-hour picket line for seven weeks. And then, because Mark was raised as a communist, because his grandparents <laughs> were communists, he had and, and, and formed unions in New York City, in Brooklyn, in New York City. He became the strategist because he knew about picket lines and organizing, you know, and getting people. Uh, and well, my family, my grandfather's brother is the was the first president of the Soviet Union and did physically execute the czar. He shot. Zar Nicholas in the head. He is the guy. So my whole family knew how to organize. And, you know, as growing up, I was dandled on Paul Robeson's knee when I was five years old, and he sang Old Man River to me. So the, you know, so it's, 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 we're doing it, we're doing it, and we're also appealing to the unions, you know, to the uh, SAG and AFTRA and AGVA, and the, now I'm emerging as a, a leader because everybody else was working. You know, they, 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 had, they, they were losing money, you know, Leno and, and Dreesen and Leno. So I'm, so Dreesen and I are speaking at the Writers Guild, was no, it? No, we, we went to, AFTRA, we AFTRA. went to the National Convention of AFTRA Representatives. Yes. At the Hyatt, no, we weren't at the Hyatt in uh, hmm, no the Roosevelt. We were at the Roosevelt right. first. If Maynard spoke, he was uh, one of uh, Mitzi's. Okay, and look, look, here's the thing. So we're in a, a, a room, probably about 250, 300 union representatives. That's very important to understand. Union representatives. Biff Maynard, Tom Dreesen got up and he spoke and he said, you know, we would like you to support us because we don't want to give our labor for no money, blah, blah, blah. And he, he makes a very nice speech and he gets very nice applause, but polite. Biff Maynard gets up and he goes, with all due respect to the people in this room, comics are not workers. <laughs> there were four of us sitting on the side and we go, we just won the support of AFTRA. <laughs> Absolutely, because you could watch. There was a <gasps> of 300 people breathing in all at the same time, and he knew it. So, meeting comes to an end, ba ba ba, and we run back. And I, Joe, and I get to the picket line, and Jay is standing there before anybody else. So I run up, to uh, Jay comes over to me, or I go over to Jay, and he goes, well, what happened? I say, well, boop, and I begin to explain what happens, and Biff Maynard is now right behind us, right? And he pulls the car into the driveway next to the comedy store, to the east of the comedy store, to try and get into the parking lot, but Jay and I are standing there. So he guns the engine, and Jay looks at me, and I look at Jay, 
and we're just talking, and Biff doesn't go to hit us, but he drives at us. To scare the shit out of us. To them. scare us. And we easily step to the side, and Jay smacks the side of the car and falls to the floor. He's now lying in the, in the parking lot on the ground. Biff comes back, he parks the car, comes back. People are oh, screaming. He's, he's we really don't know. so, he looks, oh, oh shit. Everybody. And he runs upstairs. But I know that there is a Depression era law passed that because there was so much union busting that if you hurt a union member walking a legitimate picket line, the member can sue you and take your business. That's the law and that's the penalty. Maynard ran upstairs and within 20 minutes, she capitulated. Strike was over. He went screaming. He's, I hit now, Jay. I hit Jay. And, and, and they, Jay is on the floor. I'm going, what the fuck are you doing? And he goes, I'm fine, Mark. Yes. <laughs> awesome. All right. One last name. O.J. Simpson. Actually, as far as O.J., he was an outwardly a nice man. He was, and I worked with him three years, I think, through two, at least two. He was always nice, always sweet, funny. We would goof around. We'd go to lunch every, you know, we'd go to lunch all the time. And I, I have nothing bad to say. Did he do it? I think he did it without question. But you but, never saw signs of a terrible temper. Uh, never, never. Yeah. And, you know, we're working in the heat of the summer and on the ball field, and it was really... But I, I can't say anything. He was a nice guy. Your proudest moment in show business. There's nothing in show business I'm <laughs> proud of. <laughs> um, my appearance in Love, L-U-V, by Murray Shiskal. I starred in the show. And uh, to this day, that is one of the the Oh, I also danced Harry Beaton in Brigadoon. There are so many, I, seriously. There are so many acting roles and uh, that I have done that I am seriously proud of. Mostly on the live stage, not on television or movies. Joanne? I don't, I don't, I think maybe when I was on the road and I started to feel that power of, oh, oh, I do this very well. And that, no, oh, no, this is good. That, that I have the sense of, yeah, I'm, I think that was very, very proud. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. When uh, husbands, wives, and lovers it's canceled, right? Canceled, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I I felt that I had to go out and get more work. I mean, when for the thirteen weeks that we shot the show, it was easy. You showed up in the morning, you know. Next week you were going to come back. Showed up in the morning. Um, I learned a lot. I learned, you know, camera work and all that stuff. 
And when it closed, that broke my heart because I had all these fantasies. You know, when you're very poor, you have these fantasies, whoa, we'll go seven years, it'll go into syndication, I'll never have to work again, blah, 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 blah. Well, that doesn't happen very often. And, um, but it did say, well, fuck it, I'm not getting, this is not going to kick my ass, I'm going out. So afterwards, it was, I was driven by anger that it closed, shut down. I can't think disappointing so much. But a, a very proud moment uh, is that Claudia went on to become an incredibly successful writer and uh, that she created a television series about us, How to Live with Your Parents for the Rest of Your Life, and that when the four of us now are together, we share this love of the business, Isabella, Claudia, and and now and Jonathan Schmack too, uh, because of you know, uh, it that makes me feel filled with pride that uh, that this is who our family is. Yeah, it is. A, it is a, a astounding. Everyone in the family actually likes show business. And what advice would you give to the? People who are living in a poor neighborhood, their parents ditch them. Maybe one of them is sick. They don't have any money. They don't have any real direction. How do they get to the next level and have the kind of careers that you have? And then what advice do you have for the comedians? Because you've seen so many of them. Yeah. Uh, how to get to the next level as well. You have to understand that your surroundings are not you. And then you have to make sure that you really love what you're doing, stand-up or acting or dancing. And if you do that, you simply construct, starting with education, if you're a dancer, who are you going to study with, actor, who are you going to study with? And you must live in the world on the path, the trail of the end result you want and you just keep doing that you do not let it overwhelm you absolutely that that's that's the game if you love it and you keep doing it you will find your way i mean we came from a little less than zero and and the earliest you can accept the reality and embrace it in an honorable, positive way, but really know, learn that the second word is business. Yes, right. And to be educated and to know the truth about the fact that this is a business is a big help to, because so many um, uh, actors and comedians and, and artistic people, again, have a snobbishness that hurts them uh, in the end. And then, and then the other thing, really try not to do something that we're all so susceptible to, try not to blame it on someone else. And if really try not to, because that's a killer career killer. It's a good bar story, but it's not, it's a career killer. If you're a, if you're a comic, understand it's not the jokes. 
you're not there to deliver jokes. You're there to deliver a personality and a point of view. And everybody says, well, how do you do that? It's your personality. You can't create something that's not you. And the, one of the ways you find it, and this is a lot of work, every time you say something that makes someone laugh, write it down or have a little tape recorder with you and, and then write all that stuff out and formulate those words, those stories, those jokes, those sarcasms, those whatever they are, into some pattern that tells a story. Because in what you do instinctively is your personality, is your sense of humor, and then you take that as the basis to create a point of view, your view of the world. And then you apply that to various subjects as you gain a skill with being able to do that. I think, and because we're going to leave now to have a lovely dinner, I will, My one of my favorite people was a comedian named Ronnie Shakes, who was a lovely man and he has had my favorite one-liner, I drink to forget and then I urinate and remember. <laughs> God bless Ronnie Shakes. <laughs> Right. Mark Alano, Joanna Astro, thank you so much for thank coming. Thank you. I hope you had a good time. Oh, my God, we had a Wait. great time. We I appreciate it. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on MTAB303, March 28th, 2016. Title, Why Am I Paying for School? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. Five stars. It reads, I am currently a college student with hopes of one day establishing a career in entertainment. I get more invaluable information about what I want to do from this podcast alone than I have gotten in my three years of college education. The first-hand accounts from greatness itself is unparalleled, and there is nothing like it on iTunes. By far the most entertaining and insightful podcast I know of. Five out of five stars! Exclamation point. Well, MTAB 303, I am humbled and flattered, and I am so, so grateful for that review. Incredible. I speechless thank you and congratulations special thanks to our new sponsor aqua true with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology check it out go to industrystandardwater.com takes you directly to their website type in the code 100 save yourself a hundred dollars 
I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.